I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. And at times it's been a roller coaster ride with incredible ups and a couple of spirals down. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it's why I have a soft spot for small business owners and entrepreneurs. Their ability to risk financial and job security to chase the rewards of bringing their idea to life. These people who dream and do are the heart of our economy. And it's in our collective interest to keep them beating strong. From their passion and pursuit comes innovation, job creation, and all the positive energy that comes from those who make things happen. The problem though, is that only two in five people who have entrepreneurial aspirations follow through. To change those odds, I wanna to talk to all you aspiring entrepreneurs about the founder's journey. The Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, which is part of Western University, the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch, and the Globe and Mail have all come together to create an online course to help turn entrepreneurial dreams into reality. Eight modules taught by award-winning professors that focus on the journey from dreaming to doing, from ideation to finding your first customer, scaling to capitalizing your business, and they even have a module for people who want to chase both profit and purpose, who want to make a social impact. This sounds like a commercial, I make no apologies. This is the type of course I wish I had starting my entrepreneurial career. If you're interested, go to thefoundersjourney.ca. And best of all, thanks to RBC, it's free. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And to launch the Founders Journey, I had an opportunity to sit down with Brian Baumler, a Western alumni in front of a live audience this week. We talked about his journey from hammering nails to hammering out international television deals and how he and his wife now own 17 businesses. You not only learn about his journey, but also some of the incredible insights and ideas that he's gathered along the way. Very special to be here. Chatter Than Matters is about journeys. We're all on different journeys in life. We all hit speed bumps. Sometimes we get hit with a sledgehammer called the pandemic. And today I see a lot of journeys being impacted by this storm and negativity, this sense of impossibility. And I think it's really important. I want to thank RBC for making sure that we tell true stories of people that despite circumstance are finding a way to make things happen. And tonight we have a very special individual. He would define what I think people think about when they think about Canada abroad. He's a super nice guy. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's giving. He's caring. He's focused on charities. He's focused on a lot of good stuff. I'd like to bring to the stage Brian Bomber. I wasn't sure you were introducing me after <laughs> that. Wow. So Brian, there's a lot we're going to cover, but I think to talk journey and entrepreneur, it, it would be great if we could go back to your early days and just talk about growing up and what kind of influence your parents had and your circumstances had and you deciding that you one day wanted to be your own boss. I think, you know, to be honest, I think I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I grew up, you know, with, with a dad that escaped East Germany under a under a train with his little sister and, uh, you know, somehow made it to Canada and actually opened his first business uh, as a bomber quality sheet metal, an aircraft structural engineer uh, company the year I was born, uh, you know, took a risk with uh, with three young kids and, and, and opened a company. So, I mean, I grew up, you know, being taught that if you didn't get up early and go to work and come home late and work hard and take care of your money and, and protect uh, your business, you didn't eat. My dad was a very frugal guy. So, of course, when I started my first construction company, I borrowed as much money as I could and I bought the biggest, you know, badass truck with the, with the shiny wheels and the, and the 
tailpipe and the stereo, and, and I put my name on it, Baumler Quality Construction. My dad pointed at the truck, and being a frugal guy, I thought, uh, I thought I'm in big trouble now. And, and I said, listen, dad, you know, it's all about image now. If I don't, if I don't look successful, nobody is going to want to do business with me. I, I have to put that, that image out there that I'm doing well. And he said, no, that's my name. Don't f- it up. <laughs> and, and that was my, that was my introduction into, you know, it, you know, my mom piped in immediately after and she said, and you keep your nose clean. Uh, and what she meant by that was show up when you say you'll be there, do what you say you'll do. Uh, cash the check, pay your taxes, and you can sleep at night. You don't have to look over your shoulder. You know, those four points are really the key to success to any business. Growing up, by the time I was 12, my construction empire was like snowbanks and pillows mm-hmm. on the couch. I understand you built your first cottage as a young teen. My dad, again, was was that guy that if, if it was time to re-roof the house, he'd buy the shingles and read the instructions, mess it up, reread the instructions. He was German, so he'd re-engineer the instructions <laughs> a few times. <laughs> Uh, and we would do it and, it, and it was trial and error. But at the end of the day, the lesson was the roof is going to get finished properly. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard it's going to be. It doesn't matter how long it's going to take. It doesn't matter how many times we have to read the instructions, talk to roofers, watch the videos, read the books. The roof will get done. And we did. You know, we started building a cottage. Uh, I was about 10 years old. And-, and you kind of parlayed that into, I don't know if it was just shaking down your neighbors or the neighborhood, but you became the local handyman. It was. I was offered a job pumping gas at the San Susi Island Marina, uh, and it was in exchange for you know gas in my own boat and ice cream and, and five bucks an hour. And I, and I thought about that, and I thought, well, I can do better than that. So at, at 14, I opened a, a little company with a friend of mine. It was a business card. It wasn't really a company. With CRA may want to have a chat with me about that. <laughs> it was the Moon River Handyman. And we had a, a tin boat and a, a 15-horsepower engine, and we started picking up garbage. We could make $20, $30, $40, but we were going to be rich. And that turned into uh, pick some lumber up for us for some contractors building. And that turned into carry that lumber up for us. And then it was measure and cut that and then pound a nail in. A few summers later and, and 5,000 hours later, we were you know building hand-cut roofs and, and what have you. So it, it started something. Let me parlay that. Parents teaching about being frugal and sort of your four principles, uh, starting your own business. Do you think that's something we're missing now in society with kids that we're not encouraging more entrepreneurial activity, kind of like sing for your supper versus here's five bucks and go to the movies? You look at it differently when you are the entrepreneur and you do have the motivation uh, because the world does need employees, right? So as, a, as, a, as an employer, uh, you don't want everybody to get the secret. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't, want, you don't want to give away the secret to everybody. But at the same time, I think entrepreneurial people in small business, they spread wealth. Uh, they don't have that wealth going into singular large corporations that own everything. I think they spread wealth. They treat their employees better. You know, they grow. They have the ability to scale. Uh, and, and certainly they're more creative. And I think, you know, with our children, you know, they've grown up again, seeing a number of businesses and, and the effort that goes in is equal to or hopefully not quite as great as the reward that, that comes out. You have to put effort into something if you want to get that return. The younger you are in your teens and your 20s, risk it all. You have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they need to be taught that. Risk it all. Get out there. Try it. Your 30s, you know, build your wealth a little bit. Your 40s, start to think about getting a little more conservative. But in your 20s, certainly you have nothing to lose. So, so what gave you that appetite for risk? Because, I mean, you went to Western. You did a poli-sci degree. I did. And you then went to really work for an air cargo company. Pretty secure job, doing quite well. But you decided to sort of become your own boss. What gave you the appetite to step on a tightrope saying, I can do what I learned to do at 14 instead of pump gas 
Carrie Lumber. I think uh, I'm just not a good employee. I didn't want to be told when to show up and when to leave and what to do. There's a gentleman that works, it's, it's now Cargo Jet, believe it or not. It was Canair Cargo at the time. It was a, a freighter service that was based out of my father's hangar at, at the airport. And I got a job cleaning airplanes and loading things at night on a forklift. And this is all the while still building and, and constructing and doing renovations. Jamie was one of the VPs. And I, I said to him one day, I had moved to Vancouver and you know I was prepping to go to law school and all this kind of craziness. And, and I said to him, listen, all your airplanes are flying to Vancouver full and they come back empty. Why don't you let me sell ocean cargo at a discount to get it there three days earlier than the trucks. These are things I lay awake thinking about at night. And I just want a 2% commission on the sales. And he said, you're not a sales guy. End of story. And the very next day, I opened Westpac Cargo International. It was a cargo brokerage company. We bought all the space on their airplanes on the way back to Toronto. And, you know, I didn't have to show up at work when I was told to. And, and we, did, uh, we did very well. You know, for me, it was it was really a matter of laying awake at night, thinking of different ideas and putting action into them. And it's like fishing. My dad had a, a f- great fishing analogy as a kid. And I hear it from friends now when they say, oh, you're very lucky. You know, all this stuff just kind of fell into your lap. But they're the same friends I would fish with. And they throw one cast and say, there's no fish here. Let's go. The guys you see come home at night with a boat full of fish, they're out there at 5 a.m. And they come back at 8 p.m. And they've cast every inch of every shoreline. You know, I always say the fishermen and the farmers are the ones that will survive any business storm. A lot of kids today, they're handed a bag of seeds when they finish school, when they, you know, when they graduate, whatever it may be. And a lot of kids today just eat the seeds. The farmer gets up at 5 a.m. and plants all those seeds and spends the next nine months watering them and eventually has a huge harvest and 10 bags of seeds. You eat your seeds now uh, or you starve for a while and put the effort in and then you, you have 10 times the seeds plus a harvest. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So how does the values of your dad and this sort of work ethic, how, how do no. they weave together with the worlds within arms reach of desire? You know, technology, content, gamification. Yeah. In all that technology and all that arms reach products and what have you, there's a great opportunity for entrepreneurs there. If you can monetize something and put effort into something that you enjoy in doing it, you're an entrepreneur. A program like this would have saved me you know, a lot of time researching and, and teaching myself. If we produce that content, make the opportunities available to kids, then that's a start. My guest today, Brian Baumler, in front of a live audience to support the launch of The Founder's Journey, a free online course for aspiring entrepreneurs. Let's talk about mental health. It's Mental Health Month, and you were very open on the show talking about anxiety, and it wasn't a small case of anxiety. This was a <clears throat> demon that almost took you down. Yeah, no, I spent most of my 20s in a, in a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week anxiety state. I mean, to the point where I thought I, w- I, thought I was going to drop dead at any, any moment. When the television production started, this is 10 companies later, uh, I had forgotten about that. Still experiencing it, but just forgotten about the fact that it was, a let's say, a speed bump. And on day one of filming, I showed up and I thought, and I can't do this. I have a massive anxiety disorder and agoraphobia. What am I doing? It really was that mindset of like, well, I guess I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'll just feel like I'm about to die and we'll see how this goes. And um, <laughs> I just had to kind of fight through it. It was, it was in retrospect, the very best exposure therapy that anyone could ever have. 
I remember walking into the very first home show that we did. Now we're partnered with Marketplace Events and the, and the Baltimore Proof Network uh, home shows across the country in the U.S. But I show up at this home show for peanuts. And, you know, at 10 years prior to that, I would have paid $5,000 to get on stage and talk. Well, not to get on stage, to have someone on stage <laughs> and talk to 5,000 people and advertise my business. And here I am being paid to walk on stage. And uh, as soon as I walked on stage, I had tunnel vision. And the only thing I could see was this one very angry lady looking, angry looking lady in the front seat. And, and I didn't even know what I was saying. All I thought was she hates me uh, for an hour. And she was the first one to come up and say, it was wonderful. I love you. And, and I thought, my God, you've just terrified me for an hour. Here. So let's, ta let's talk about, let's talk a little bit more about anxiety and imposter syndrome, because another story that I think is wonderful is after you did the first season and Sarah, this decides to throw this launch party with all your friends mm. and family show up. <clears throat> Everybody's so excited to see it. The show airs. What was the first, you whispered to her and said what? Uh, we were actually sitting at a bar in Oakville side by side in two big recliners in the show. Everyone, there's champagne bottles popping and high-fiving. And I leaned over and whispered in her ear, that was the worst thing I've ever watched. <laughs> terrible. It was absolutely terrible. So how do you overcome that? Because clearly you've become one of the top specialty TV stars in the world, beloved all over the world. 51 countries? Distributed 51 countries now, yeah. I think anxiety, fear of moving forward. I feel like my feet are in cement. Yeah. What advice can you give people in terms of taking that first step? You don't have to run the marathon yet, but just kind of put the feet forward and start moving towards that dream. I reached a point where I didn't want to leave the house. <clears throat> and when I did leave the house, I wanted to, you know, go straight to a hospital or, or go back home. And I finally decided if I'm going to drop dead, I might as well do it in a nice car, uh, <laughs> you know, or on a yacht or, or something like that. I think actually when Quentin was born, our, our first child, that's when I realized, I'm like, I really don't have a choice. So how did your father relate to that? I mean, somebody that escapes hiding underneath a railway car, probably doesn't have a lot of sympathy for no, mental health. For an anxious kid. That, yeah. Uh, so I mean, how, how did you, how did you come to terms with not disappointing him, but realizing that this was something serious? My dad, despite all of that is, is terrifyingly calm. Uh, I mean, I stood beside him in the ER after a heart attack. He says, well, you know, these things happen. <laughs> and, and I thought, my God, I would be, I, my heart rate would be 400 thinking now I'm going to have a heart attack any day. <laughs> We're a little different in that way, but he was, he was very supportive and he kind of came out and he said, Hey, this is the backpack you get to carry, you know, just, uh, just keep carrying it. I've had the pleasure of interviewing you and Sarah together. And it's one of my favorite interviews because we're rarely in the same room. Rarely, you actually weren't that time. <laughs> I think one of you was in Barbados and one was in Florida, but yeah. the beauty of the remote thing, but I love the way you play off each other. But as you talk about twenties is a time to risk it all. Right. But when you start having a family, mortgage payments, responsibilities. I start thinking, you know, I just had my first grandchild. I'm thinking 100 years out with the planet. Like, I didn't I know you were that old. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Does risk change as you start inheriting responsibilities and how society's norm is? You're supposed to be working nine to five. You're, right. you're supposed to take care of the children. Where's your husband? He's never home. Mm, yeah, and of course, we, we, you know, we were living in Oakville. Sarah's sister was married to a penny loafer and, and, and chino and collared shirt guy. And I still remember showing up in, in construction boots and, and torn jeans and the look of terror on her, on her family's face. You know, we talked about when, you know, when to have kids and when we were ready to have kids. And was it, you know, when we owned the house, what was it when we paid the house off and we had a, a secure income that. and Quentin just, he just arrived. I guess it's now. That was when I opened our second construction company and, and said, that's it. Here, here we are. I felt there was more risk in being an employee because I couldn't decide when I was fired. I couldn't decide when I was replaced by a robot. I couldn't decide when the market turned and I had to pivot. How important is it to get your partner to support you? Because that's one thing when you feel that's your armor. 
yeah. that I'm I'm going to be I'm my own boss. But there's also maybe someone else in your relationship. But you have another boss, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and also it's just going like, how important is it starting an entrepreneurship if you're with somebody to make sure you guys are singing through the same song sheet? I would say there's two sides to that. One, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you will be successful despite what anybody says to you. It doesn't matter if it's your partner, or your parents, your friends, your family, your your bank. Well, maybe the bank has more of an impact. There's that, and then there's being supported and, and being helped. And I mean, Sarah, you know, at pregnant, wandered neighborhoods with me, putting flyers in, in mailboxes. She's, and she told me it was 10,000 flyers you made her put up. I think it was closer to 22,000 yeah. flyers, but we put a lot of flyers oh, yeah. up. We got two phone calls. <laughs> and one was for 200. My, I mean, my first job in, in that company was a, a $200 hardwood floor install. So, so talk to me about your first customer, because one of the great modules in this course is about getting that first customer. Uh, I mean, there were days in the early days I would pick the phone up repeatedly to make sure there was a dial tone. This is back for some of the students. This is back when we had phones on our desks. Um, again, in this program, uh, information out there, you have to make sure you utilize the resources to do market research and make sure that there is a, a need for it. Your very first sale, your very first anything, you have to make sure that you deliver uh, the customer service and the experience and the product that will make them come back and tell their neighbor. Uh, I was sitting on a flight to Australia once and the guy beside me was telling me how terrible his contractor was. And I thought, holy shit, I can build someone a 10,000 square foot, multi-million dollar home and do it almost perfectly. And he's not going to tell anyone. But if I screw one thing up, he's going to tell a guy on a flight on the way to Australia. <laughs> I mean, it, it, yeah. they will tell everybody. Uh, so you have to be really protective of your brand and your business and, and, you know, stick to those four key things, you know, do what you say you'll do and clean up when you're done. So you talk about being protective of your brand. You now have 17 companies, lots of employees. You're creating that level of trust with all of those people. So right. again, another module, scaling a business. Mm -hmm. You scaled your business. How do you scale past the point where you no longer know your employees first and last name and their kids? You start getting a culture where right. it's bigger than your ability to have that personal relationship. It's a difficult choice. Growing the business from, you know, my first employee, I gave away half of my revenue. You know, my second, it was a third. The third, it was a quarter and it, it, it gets easier and smaller. My battle to 12 employees plus uh, was very difficult. That's when it started to get easier at that point. But then you do get to a point where you're larger and you have to be more reactive. And I've had comments from people say, you're not even on the tools anymore. Uh, and I said, well, if you start a construction company and you're still on your knees 25 years later, you should probably just work for a construction company. Yeah. You know, you can sleep at night, you can have weekends off and, you know, there's all kinds of great things. But how there. do you deal with that criticism? That's a great point because the peers, there must be a lot of jealousy. You all started the same way and now you're big and you're successful. You must hear a lot of whispers out there that it's, you know, you're just a big TV star. You don't even know what a hammer is. You know, I watch for our children. We have four children, 9, 11, you know, 15 and 17. And I watch it. There are different levels of interaction through social media and, and digital and what have you. And of course, there's a lot more chatter uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't matter uh, out there. That's now. what my wife calls my podcast. Uh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, you know, I got to a point, I think, where it was affecting us somewhat. And we've, you know, to an extent, we put some of our personal lives and some of the businesses out there and, and, the, and the brand wise. But I, I honestly got to a point where I said, it doesn't matter. You can't live in the house on the hill and be the farmer and worry about what the, what the sheep thinks. Is that an attribute that entrepreneurs should learn early? Or is that an attribute that only comes with experience? The sense of not worrying about what other people think, but really focusing on what matters. It's not not worrying about what other people think. Obviously, if you start a business, you're an entrepreneur. You need people to think highly of you. Mm -hmm. You need people to think, yeah. you know, well, I'm not I'm talking more of the social critics. The yeah, the social side. I mean, I won't use all my analogies here from the construction site, but it's always the it's always the smelly ones that make the most 
most noise. You know, mm -hmm. the, the smelly opinions make the most noise. That's a, a vast minority. If 100,000 people, you know, like what you're doing, there's the one grumpy one that's going to say no. And there is a culture, in, and I find it, you know, having grown up in Oakville and gone to Appleby and what have you, there were so many people that patted me on the back on the way up the stairs. You get one step above, you know, past them. And it's, oh, geez, must be nice. You know, you were lucky. You think, well, you were patting me on the back. We come back, Brian Baumler calls it like it is when it comes to putting the entire family into your family business. If you aren't taking notes, you should. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. A big shout out to aspiring entrepreneurs. The Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship is part of Western University. The Globe and Mail and RBC have come together to create the Founder's Journey. It's an online entrepreneurial process course and it's taught by award-winning professors. It's free and it'll help you turn your startup dreams into reality. Go to thefoundersjourney.ca to learn more. Entrepreneurship matters to you, it matters to Canada, and it matters to RBC. What is it about Canada that we don't yeah. celebrate our brands? We don't seem to have that swagger. We don't celebrate those brands and high-five them as much in here, which makes it even more important to find that connection with the customer, to keep your brand forefront and, and happy and, and kind of spread that, that Canadian entrepreneurial spirit. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. My guest today, making a record third-time appearance in Chatter That Matters, is Brian Bondler. When we were uh, chatting backstage, you talk about, you know, a lot of your life is spent thinking. instead of sleeping, thinking about ideas and dreaming about ideas. Yeah. And again, referencing this course, if I may, you know, one of the key modules is what is a good idea? How do you know it's a good idea mm. versus you just thinking it's a good idea? So when you can't stop thinking about it. What else do you know when you, how do you validate it that you don't put everything on the line or is it, you know, where's that risk reward so you don't hurt the magic of the idea, but at the same right. time you shape it? I mean, do market research. Friends and family first, you know, I'll mention it first to Sarah and then I'll talk to the kids about it and then, you know, colleagues and business partners and other, other companies and, and, and just float the idea, uh, that, you know, do your research. There's so much market research information available as far as products, uh, markets, you know, what people are buying, where they're buying it, services that are required and also industries that, you know, have an influx of employees coming in. Trades are a great example. We're going to be at a huge deficit uh, shortly. The airlines are experiencing now. There's there's a lot of that. So you have to do research on the younger generation that's going to be coming into that field in five to ten years and look forward. I had, I had a great conversation with the uh, with the president of of Stanley Black and Decker, and I suggested that we should do a, a line of toy tools. And he said, "We don't make toys. We make tools." And I said, well, that's funny because you're paying me a quarter million dollars a year to represent your tool. And my kid wants Bosch tools because he's got a set of toy Bosch tools. So you need to farm. You need to go to that generation before and do your market research and say, what are these kids going to want in five to 10 years? You know, who's going to be available as a, as a workforce? And you, you have to really think about all of this stuff before you put that idea down. And you have to gauge again, your risk based on your age, your current responsibilities, your, your financial ability. And you, you have to put all that together. When you talk about your relationship with Sarah, are you always on the same page or do you find the differences you, you make married. you better? <laughs> <laughs> We're always on the same page. She always agrees with me. It's amazing. No, a lot of, you know, a lot of ideas I throw down. Um, you know, Sarah looks at me and says, that I don't, 
I think that's crazy. And my answer is you're not my target market, <laughs> uh, you know, based on my research. Um, interestingly enough, you know, approaching, uh, approaching the network. I love this story. So, I mean, you're hammering nails and kind of pissed off that your competitors are getting some free exposure on TV. Is that I, how it started? I was sitting on the couch, you know, watching television. I still had an air cargo brokerage company. Uh, I was, you know, in the trade, we we're doing renovations and I'm sitting watching this show and I see a plumber walk in and the host says, if you need plumbing done, this is the only plumber in the world that can do it. Any other plumber will rip you off. This is the only <laughs> plumber in the world that can install a toilet for you. And there's his name and his website under it. And I thought, holy shit, this guy did three hours of free work and he just got a million dollars worth of advertising on this show. So the wheel started turning and I emailed a production company that was developing a new show. I still have the email. And it was very simple. It said, hi, my name is Brian. I own a construction company. I've got six employees. Five of them have all of their teeth. Four of them have faces you could show on camera. Three of them are sober most of the time. Uh, I said, but you know, all of them are very good at what they do. We work our asses off. We'd be happy to come down and do all of your construction labor for the show for free for three months in exchange for the advertising on the show. You know, being high anxiety, I thought, I don't want my face. I don't really have a TV face. You know, I didn't want that part of it. I wanted the advertising and leverage that as a vehicle to grow my construction company. I wanted to be the plumber. Yeah. That all backfired and turned around. I said, how would you like to do your own show? Uh, yeah, but how did that happen? We had quoted a job in Oakville, a, you know, three quarter million dollar job. And the homeowner said, you're crazy. That's way too expensive. I'm going to do this myself. And I said, okay. And then he said, can I get the name of your demo guy? I need your framer, your plumber, your electrician. your And I said, that's not how it works. And we fast forward six months later, he's on the phone in tears. And he says, I, we, we failed inspection. We don't have permits. The place is a mess. The framing's all wrong. Uh, come in and take this job over. And we requoted it. And now it was going to be you know, closer to one and a quarter million to, to go backwards. This is when I got the call back from Frank, who's my current partner in a production company, and said, uh, hey, we want to come down and meet you. I said, well, I'm working on this, this site right now. Come on down. And, and I was expecting five-ton trucks and generators and giant lights. And I was expecting a Hollywood film crew. And just this nerd with a little camera got out of a, a, a Hyundai uh, with an assistant. And he, he came up with a digital camera. And he said, tell me what happened here. I was just me. And I pointed to home. I said, bonehead here. Thought he'd build his own house. And he effed it up so badly. He called me six months later in tears. And now I'm going to charge him double to fix it. And uh, they panned to him. And he just went... Yeah. <laughs> so Frank immediately said, I think I've got what we need. And he left. And I thought, oh, no, I, I swear, you know, I, I swore my, my gut was hanging out. Or I had three chins or, you know, something, I'm ugly, whatever it, whatever it was, I, I screwed this up. And uh, two weeks later, I was sitting with Anna Giesen, who was the head of content at the time at, at Alliance Atlantis. And she was sitting behind her desk and she had a very thick contract. And she said, how would you like to change your life? You're going to give me work to do. You're going to edit it to make me look perfect. You're going to broadcast that to my target audience and you're going to pay me. <laughs> she said, yeah. And I, I signed it and shook her hand. And she said, normally people take these to their lawyer. And one. I said, but you're a billion dollar. What are you going to do to me? <laughs> I mean, what am I going to do? In defense? Yeah. I said, Let, let's do it. And that first year of disaster DIY, uh, I made $32,500. I could barely pay my mortgage. I could barely buy food. I uh, could barely put gas in my truck, but I was on television. Yeah. You know, fast forward two more seasons and we doubled it to 26 episodes. I had no time to capitalize on the marketing I was getting from the show. We got a thousand emails a week to build houses, do reno uh, you know, do renovations. But I was working literally six or seven days a week, 20 hours a day, filming and doing the work with my crew at night. After three years, I said, I, I can't do this. So, you know, we live in a dump. 
And Sarah used to say to me, we live in this 1950s bungalow full of mold and you're the, you're the expert on TV. Isn't that a little embarrassing? <laughs> and, I, and I had said, don't they worry. They had a celebrity yeah. bus going by. Yeah, I was like, Brian Bomber Don't worry, I can, I can fix it. And that's when I said, I need to take some time off and I need to, to build my construction business and focus on that and, and our house and what have you. And this is when I had started to understand the production business a little bit and the value of, of, of advertising. And uh, I, I know you, you don't have to share numbers, but often bucks. entrepreneurs, we get success and we get blinded by success. And, but what I really like about your story here is you started to understand where the value was. They were making millions of dollars in advertising. You couldn't put gas in your tank. Mm. How did that change for you? What did you do to put it more a value exchange that everybody felt good about? What I started to do is, and I think any entrepreneur, you open one business and you realize there's an opportunity here. If you're in one business, you don't have to be a one trick pony. I see all the time and I hear all the time and I'm very careful not to make political, uh, very, I'm very vanilla on social media. Let's put it that way. Because any little comment, it's like, what well, celebrities shut up about politics. Yeah. Like, I have a degree in political science. <laughs> but, you know, I don't just bang nails in and you have to realize as an entrepreneur, you are not a political science. You are not a business major. You are an entrepreneur. That's everything. You have decided to give yourself the skills and tap the resource to learn everything about everything. You cannot be a one trick pony. And, you know, having had the handyman business and the air cargo brokerage business and the construction business and then into the production, you know, I said, well, hey, here's another, here's another opportunity. You know, we're selling the show around the world. There's revenue there. We're selling to advertisers. There's revenue there. We're, we're filming the show. There's revenue there. So I started to identify all these other, you know, areas that, that lived within this, in this bubble of what we were doing. Uh, and at the end of the day, I was very sneaky. I had signed a contract, you know, with a company lending me as the host of the show. And when I was informed again, and this goes back to the cargo story, when they said, well, we do have exclusivity and the right to replace the show, you know, to, to renew the show at our current rates. And I said, well, that contract is with a corporation. If that corporation ceases to exist, I don't see my obligation. And that was when we negotiated that we want to own the production company. We want to own international distribution on the shows, the merchandise and the ancillary, everything. And that's when I could hear a very bad word come out of, uh, come out of Anna's head. <laughs> you know, but I mean, the lesson I think for everybody in the audience is your IP. It's where your passion is. And we talked earlier, you said, you know, one of the most important things an entrepreneur must have is they must be passionate. Yeah. To me, those things are linked. You try to strip that away. You're trying to strip away the soul of the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Yet it sometimes comes down to legal battles. If you're trying to make things happen, make destiny matter, choice, not chance, that you hold on to as much of that as you can along the way. You either work hard or you work smart and you have to identify the path of least resistance is, is really what you want to do. Seeing the value of yourself and seeing the value of your brand. And it's, you know, you, you talk about passion. A lot of people talk about discipline. They say, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to be, or, or motivation, you have to be motivated. It, motivation has nothing to do with it. Uh, there's lots of days I get up in the morning. I'm like, I don't want to get up at five o'clock and do this again. But my discipline says, well, you're, you're getting up. Let's go. This concept of work-life balance. Entrepreneurs, I was an entrepreneur in my entire life. Balance just didn't exist. Is there a secret sauce? A secret side. I wish there was. There is no algorithm, uh, you know, for the balance is a fallacy. Balance doesn't exist. Uh, if you are in perfect equilibrium, uh, you're not advancing. Uh, you're not, you're not being innovative. You're not being, you know, you're not disrupting a market. You're not growing. You're just status quo. Uh, so when people ask Sarah and I, you know, how do you do this work-life balance? The answer is there's no balance. 
When I hear someone say, I'm going to put 110% on this, I think, well, you've never really given it 100%, have you? Because that, that's all you've got. You have 100% of your time, your energy, your focus, your resources. You have to decide where to spend those percentage points. When you're married and you have children and you have a number of businesses and employees uh, and ideas and, and, other, and, and hobbies and free time that you want to have, you have to decide where you spend what. If I spend 95% of my time buying Sarah flowers and going on vacation, my business isn't going to do very well. My kids are going to be lonely. If I, if I spend 95% of the time with the kids, I, I'm not going to be able to afford to feed them and I'm not going to be married. You know, if I spend 95% of the time at work, Sarah's going to have a new husband and the kids are going to have a new stepdad. And you have to really look at these things and identify what needs focus right now. My CFO and I have weekly green, yellow, red meetings. Uh, green is we don't really have to talk you know, which are a lot of weeks. Yellow is there's some stuff we should talk about. And, you know, we need to, we need to react maybe next week. And red is we're getting on the phone today and we're going to solve this issue right now. Uh, and interestingly enough, I developed that from, you know, this history of anxiety. I, I had a thing when we started filming and no matter where I am, I can't handle, you know, dis-ease in the room. If, if two people over here are arguing, I would have to stop all of this and say, let's hug it out. Let's figure it out. You do. Let's, let's just figure this out. And now we can all move forward. And it's the same thing. You have to decide where those resources are spent. And if there's an issue, you need to push more resources that way and say, we're, there's no date night this week. Uh, the construction company's on fire. Uh, kids are doing fine in school. So I need to put 95% over here and, and just move it around. So you cannot find this balance point and set that center of gravity. For, for an idea person, though, like you, which has just got this insatiable appetite, you know, your eyes shining, your heart's beating. Is it hard for you to take usually a, at a very high rate? Yeah, but is it hard for you to take a step back and deal with problems and issues you, as opposed to going? I just want to do the next new thing. Again, it's it's part of that reactive thing, and if if it's if it's an issue that's in your way of progress, it is of more importance than the progress. You know, remove the speed bump. Don't don't just hammer over it and damage something. That that's the way I look at it. So it's part of that advancement, you know, process is dealing with the current issues. And if you lose touch of that, once you get to a point where you have 15, 20 companies or you're scaled across the country, you lose touch of that and you lose touch of your, your entire business and everything folds very quickly. So. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Brian Baumler, who with his wife owns 17 businesses including an island resort in the Bahamas. So let's talk a little bit about decision-making. And I don't know if this was just the narrative in the TV or the reality, but I mean, you made one of the biggest decisions as a family. In five minutes. In five minutes. How did you have the courage to do that? And along the way, how often did you... Wish we hadn't done it? Wish you hadn't done it, or you were betting it all. You weren't in your 20s. And well, you didn't know a hurricane and a pandemic was going to hit, but we did not know that was going <laughs> to yeah. happen. So, but I mean, there, you had, those are big things that happened. So, no. you know, there comes a point again, it's that, it's that passion thing. You know, we had 12 or 13 businesses operating. We've worked hard over the past few years to, to diversify a little bit and, and protect some income streams and passive income and what have you. So we knew that, you know, worst case, this fails, but it was something we were passionate about. And it was more of a life decision at that point. It was, you know what, let's have this experience. The kids are at an age where they can't say no, they have to come with us. They're all minors. Uh, they don't have a choice. It tied in very well to other businesses. We're able to build it. We're able to film it. We're able to distribute it around the country. We're able to brand it. You know, truth be told, we've utilized and, and leveraged the network as a vehicle and as a tool 
to market our other businesses, to build things and be paid to build them and market and advertise them. Entrepreneurs are always looking. It's like a pinball game of excitement because mm-hmm. you're just natural at identifying insights and unmet needs. But adjacency, uh, integration, one plus one working together. But also diversification. So we're into some areas of business now where if, if one completely fails in a market, you know, tanks and disappears, there's something else to go to. And on the, on the risk reward side, you have to identify as well. Once you're, once you're into a, you know, businesses and you have revenue streams in certain areas, you can fail at something else. And there were times in my head, I said, if this all goes sideways, we're done. We're just, we're taking a step backwards, but we're, you know, we're able to continue again. So you, you have to have that mindset where, you know, not, not everything's going to work. And we opened that hotel $12 million later and two weeks into it with a completely full season, we're writing checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars back to people that weren't coming. So there was a moment there where we kind of looked at each other and we thought, okay, well, we finally did it. You know, this was, uh, this was a bad move. But seven months later, we reopened the hotel and we haven't had a room available since and, and we're booked almost solid through next year. It was a gamble, but at some point as well in that business, not everything's going to be a home run. You know, you have to look at the experience. The experience we had as a family there, had we lost everything, probably would have been worth the investment. You really talked about how this opened your eyes that there's people on that island that had very little, but were very happy. You got very involved with charities. You got very involved with helping the island stuff. Do you think that was a life-changing moment that the best thing that could have happened to you and your family is? I'm not saying nobody asked for a pandemic or a hurricane, but right. it really reset a lot of the values of your family, didn't it? Uh, I think it was very transformative, especially for the kids. And we, we look at the kids now and, you know, they spend a lot of time interacting with, with other adults and having adult conversations and, and learning differently. You know, core values of people around the world are the same. Uh, everybody wants to, to do something that provides food and shelter for their family. They want to, you know, love their mom and dad and take care of their kids. People around the world are the same. But the attitude on the island that, that I, that I really learned about and, and housing was, was one on the business side where they only build as they can afford it and they only build to the size they can afford it. They don't keep up with the Joneses. They build as they need to. The other thing we learned <clears throat> there is you'll see someone shoeless, you know, in a shack with a dirt floor. And they're the first people to come over and say, Hey, I went fishing today. Do you want some fish? It was that moment of, Oh, you're just offering us some fish. And you don't get that in this society. So you have to, you have to put that attitude, I think, into being an entrepreneur, being in business where you're going to get up and you're going to have a bad day. You lose money, you lose customers, you, whatever it is. And you just have to think, well, you know, if I wake up tomorrow, I got a great opportunity to, to carry on and move forward. So back up and have that perspective of the people that are looking at you thinking, God, I wish I was in your position. I'm a big believer in countering that negativity and that sense of impossibility yeah. by reminding people that. So I asked my uh, Chatter That Matters community, I said, send a couple of questions. And one question I really liked that came in was, what's the biggest mistake you've made? Why are you happy you made it? I mean, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. You know, people think, uh, you know, it's just, you've, you've, you're great at this. You know what you're doing. I made, I made mistakes every day. I fail every day. One of the biggest mistakes I did when the I allowed someone else to run my business and didn't have enough focus on it. I trusted someone else to represent my interests and my IP uh, while I was at work, basically. It, it was extremely expensive. What I learned is your due diligence. You have to be, as an owner operator, you have to be there. You have to be involved until you get to a point where you have a partner you can trust or a, you know, management you can trust or what have you. So too early, I tried to grow too fast. It cost me about a million and a half dollars to clean up the mess. You know, I think it was that I, I could see my dad's finger shaking and I said, well, I gotta, I gotta clean this up. 
And, uh, you know, we went back and we, we cleaned everything up and we spent a lot of money to, uh, to right the wrongs that had been done. And, and a lot of it was construction things, you know, that this looks like crap, that looks like crap. But, you know, it protected, I think, my brand and I think it protected my mental health long term. Your industry, like every other industry sector, is going through massive change. You've Which got, industry? Well, I'd say the broadcast industry. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But I'd say the broadcast industry in terms of consolidation, streaming. Right. It's just a micronism of the, the whole world. Right. What can universities do? What, what can, you know, Western, you know, we've already given kudos for this with RBC and Global Mail for this journey, but what do you think universities have to do to make sure they stay in step? I think you have to be, you know, reactive. It's the same way that, that, Sarah and I haven't killed each other later, uh, yet. You have, you have a set amount of resources and that those are your resources. You have to spend, decide where to spend those. You have to be proactive in some areas and reactive in some areas. Uh, I think you have to consult. And again, you know, it's at the school level. It's, uh, like with me, with the kids, I got to look at what are the kids playing with? What do the kids want to learn? What are the kids doing? How do we, how do we monetize that? How do we turn that into a benefit for them in, in our world? And you have to constantly be looking at what's coming. I think it's a matter of creating programs like this uh, that people have access to, that's, that's innovative, that, that's new. Remove all of the barriers and provide all the resources for people to do uh, and learn what, those things. Entrepreneurship is where jobs are being created, innovation is happening, and entrepreneurs, they're the heart of our economy. It's in our collective interest to keep them beating strong. So a big shout out to the Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at Western University and the Globe and Mail and RBC. They've come together to create the Founder's Journey, which is designed to help Canadians pursue, scale, and realize their entrepreneurial dreams. The Founder's Journey is an eight-module online course that covers all the steps from ideation to growing your business, and it's taught by award-winning professors. And to hear more about what you can expect, Here's Eric Morse. He's the executive director of the Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at Western University. What can we do to help increase the success of entrepreneurs uh, across our country? We'll teach you how to go out and talk to customers and help you shape kind of your solution to that problem. Uh, we'll help you get the business up and going and find your first sale. We'll also help you scale or grow your business. And for those with an interest in social entrepreneurship, that is businesses that have maybe a double bottom line, you know, for the environment or for the disadvantaged in one way or another, plus profits, we'll talk about how to do that effectively as well. So it really covers the whole journey from startup, identifying a problem, creatively coming up with a solution, and getting it out in the market uh, at a scale that can you know, really benefit you and all your stakeholders. The Founder's Journey. You can find out more and enroll at thefoundersjourney.ca. And these courses are free. Why? Because entrepreneurship matters to you, to our economy, to Western University, the Globe and Mail, and to RBC. My dad always had a saying, if you were driving slower, you wouldn't have gotten an accident. And I said, well, no, if I was driving, so the guy T-boned me, he said you wouldn't have been there. You know, luck is a factor, for sure. You can outwit luck. Everything is lucky. You know, even bad luck may, may keep you out of the path of something worse. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.